Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and internationally. Hello, this is Stephen Adams, Senior Director in the Global Council office in London. Today I'm joined by Global Council's Chief Economist, Gregor Irwin. Um, Gregor, we're going to talk about uh, a blog you've just published uh, on the GC website, which is about uh, where things currently stand in the Brexit negotiation. And I say the Brexit negotiation because, of course, most people will, will, um, will see the Brexit problem as a question of the UK and the, uh, and the states of the European Union negotiating. But the point you make right in the title of your blog is that actually it's, at this point, probably more about a, a mathematical problem in the UK Parliament. Just take us through what you mean by that. Well, uh, that, that's right, Stephen. I mean, ultimately, this is all about getting a majority for a Brexit deal, uh, most likely something like uh, the, the deal that has already been negotiated between the UK and the EU. Um, it, it, you know, it's tempting. We've seen several votes on Brexit in Parliament already. It is, it is tempting to look at the size of the margin either for or against um, uh, the issue that's been put before Parliament. The approach that I've taken is slightly different. What, what, what I think we need to do is to look at the size of the rebellion, uh, either within the Conservative Party or within the Labour Party, and some of those key votes, because that in itself is revealing about uh, where a majority may eventually be found. There are three votes worth looking at. One, one of course, is the first meaningful vote when 118 Conservatives rebelled against the government. But then two weeks later, we had a series of motions in Parliament, and two for me stand out. One is the Brady motion, uh, which the government won, and that is because only 17 Conservatives uh, rebelled on that particular day. The, the other one is the Cooper amendments uh, put forward by Labour backbencher Yvette uh, Cooper. Um, now, that's interesting because uh, there were 25 Labour MPs who defied the party whip and voted against that. Now, um, what, what conclusions might we draw about where a majority might be found for a second? Well, just, just, remind us, just remind us what the Brady Amendment and the Cooper Amendment called for. Well, the, the, the Brady Amendment was to give Theresa May a mandate to go back and renegotiate the Brexit uh, deal, uh, to seek alternative arrangements to replace the Irish uh, backstop. Uh, I mean, quite a heroic ask um, uh, by, by Parliament, but, but that, 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 that is what it was for. The Cooper Amendment... And that, and that passed? That passed, that's correct. The, the, the Cooper Amendment was quite different. Um, that was about attempting to set aside time in Parliament to allow backbenchers to be able to propose uh, legislation which would require the government to extend the Article 50 process with the explicit intention of preventing uh, no deal. Uh, but that did not pass, and the reason it didn't pass is because 25 Labour MPs rebelled against the party whip. But that was essentially Parliament stepping back, at least from this, at this point, from the, from the possibility of actually taking a firmer grip on the process. Uh, th th that's correct. And of course, that's significant in itself. But, but what, what I'm trying to do in this blog is not so much focus on the, the, the wishes that are being expressed by Parliament on these individual issues, 
but to identify what the appetite for rebellion is within each of the political parties in order to try and work out what that can tell us about where there is potential to find a majority uh, for uh, a Brexit deal in a second meaningful uh, vote. And, and I think there are, there are quite a few things that we can um, infer from what we've seen in Parliament so far. Well, one is that this is really all about Labour, the Conservatives and the DUP. I think you can forget about the other political parties because they tend to be voting uh, against the government cohesively um, uh, uh, and, and I really don't think that is, that is likely uh, to change. Um, the second thing is, uh, I mean, very clearly, the government's preferred approach is to minimise the scale of any rebellion within the Conservative Party. But we can see from the scale of that rebellion, the first meaningful vote, um, that that is, uh, you know, a tall order. Uh, and also we can see from the demands that are being made uh, within the Conservative Party um, that they're going to be increasingly hard uh, to satisfy. Um, and, and then just the final observation is about Labour. Um, clearly, Labour votes are going to be critical uh, given that um, a sizable Conservative rebellion and a second meaningful vote is almost inevitable. Uh, and, and really, for every Conservative vote the government loses, uh, they're going to have to find a Labour MP who's going to step in and be willing to vote with the government. Right, so you've... I mean, just to drill down into your, your second point there about the government's preferred strategy, uh, I mean, you've implicitly, and you, you set this out in your blog, the government's kind of strategy is based on two things. One, one, one is that the negotiating strategy uh, implied by the Brady Amendment is a credible one. And to some extent, of course, the second is the, the, the probability that that failure of the Cooper Amendment is essentially a permanent state of affairs. The Parliament won't, at, at, a, at a future point, reverse its current unwillingness to actually take a firmer grip on the process. Now, in your blog, you're pretty sceptical about both of those things, so just tell us why. Yeah, um, so, I mean, clearly, um, Theresa May's strategy, th there are two elements to it. Well, well, one is to try and run the clock down. Now, despite the failure of the Cooper Amendment to pass, um, I think it's still clear that there is a majority in Parliament against uh, a no-deal uh, Brexit. Uh, if it comes to it, um, it appears that there are Conservatives who have so far been loyal to the government, including some cabinet ministers, who would ultimately um, vote to try and block uh, a no-deal Brexit, most likely by extending the Article 50 process. So I, I would say that's a bluff that will eventually be called. The other part of the strategy is, of course, the renegotiation. But we can see uh, very clearly that the EU is uh, refusing uh, to renegotiate the withdrawal agreement. Um, and, you know, at, at, at best, if we're being realistic, um, uh, Theresa May will be able to come back with uh, perhaps uh, some reassurances that may work with some of her uh, rebellious backbenchers, but they're never going to, those reassurances will never satisfy uh, the hard core of hard Brexiters um, who, who want the backstop removed entirely. Right, and that brings us to the third leg of your analysis, uh, which is the logical conclusion that if ultimately she can't stem conservative rebellions sufficiently to get 
back that 118 vote deficit that you flagged at the beginning. If ultimately there's going to be a hardline DUP and conservative backbench unwillingness to come on board, then she has to rely on Labour votes. You pointed out in the blog that there were 25 Labour uh, votes or abstentions uh, with the government um, last week, but she's clearly going to need more than that. So what kind of challenge does that present, and, and how feasible really is, this, is the idea of a Conservative Prime Minister forcing through a Brexit outcome with Labour backing on that scale? Well, uh, what the government has been attempting to do so far is to lure individual Labour MPs into supporting the government's Brexit deal, uh, in most cases by um, offering commitments on Labour standards, environmental standards, uh, that these will be maintained. Um, but really, you know, while the government may be willing to tempt um, a, a few more than the 25 have already shown signs of rebellion, in all probabilities, as you said, that is unlikely to be enough. So that, that means something bigger will be required. And, and that probably involves doing a deal with the Labour Party leadership if this is to get through uh, ultimately. And, and, and of course, that's why um, the, the Labour Party's announcement yesterday, Jeremy Corbyn setting out uh, five demands uh, for a cross-party deal is, is potentially uh, extremely uh, uh, important. The, 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 the problem with those demands from Theresa May's perspective is that they are quite simply difficult to accept. The, the, the good news is Jeremy Corbyn is not attempting to reopen the withdrawal agreement itself, but he is demanding something in the political declaration which Theresa May and many of the potential Conservative rebels uh, will find extremely difficult to accept, which is a permanent customs union and close alignment with the single market, which in effect rules out an independent uh, trade policy in future. Just explain the distinction between the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration for us. Well, the withdrawal agreement is the legally binding um, uh, divorce terms as part of the, if you like, the package uh, 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 Brexit deal. The political declaration is different. It's not legally binding. It's a statement of political intent about the future relationship. And the EU has been very clear so far um, that it is not willing to renegotiate the withdrawal agreement, uh, which contains this, um, you know, hugely divisive um, elements, which is the Irish backstop. But it is open to reconsidering the political declaration. Right. Now, you, as you've just said, uh, clearly for a Conservative Prime Minister to be reaching across uh, the, the, the aisle um, in, uh, in that way is a big risk for her. It risks deep divides to the Conservative Party. It obviously potentially, you know, it, 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 it puts her, her leadership in a, in a very difficult place. Um, but presumably it also poses some potential problems for the leader of the opposition himself. Um, and you flag those in your blog. So just take us through those. Well, that, that, that's right. I, th I think this presents um, political dilemmas for both party leaders. And if a deal is to be done, then it risks dividing one or both of uh, the main political uh, parties. Um, for Theresa May, um, accepting a permanent customs union would almost certainly mean a large-scale uh, rebellion from hard Brexiters 
on her backbenchers and probably also some cabinet ministers uh, as well. For the, for the Labour Party, there the, are already very critical voices uh, on Labour's backbenches about the offer that Jeremy Corbyn made yesterday. Um, the, the accusation is that he's now facilitating uh, Theresa May's uh, Brexit. And there is, um, you know, a, a real risk for Jeremy Corbyn that actually some of his MPs end up leaving the Labour Party over this and the party uh, in Westminster uh, is split, uh, which clearly um, makes his chances of uh, winning an election, becoming the next Prime Minister, uh, much harder to, to realise. Okay, I mean, I'm loath to do this, but I have to put you on the spot and ask you what you think uh, we should be watching for um, over the next few days and weeks, and indeed where you think this is likely to end up. Well, do you know, uh, the, the, there are clearly two negotiations that are happening just now. There's the one in Brussels and there's the one in London. Uh, and for me, you know, Theresa May has gone to Brussels today. She's meeting with um, the President of the European Commission, the President of the European Council. For me, that is not the really important negotiation. The most important negotiation is the one that takes place in London between Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn. It's a hugely high-risk negotiation for both party leaders, but that's where I will be focusing my attention. Right, and the rubric you've given us here is watch the rebels. I mean, the next opportunity, presumably, to watch the rebels is um, possibly on the 13th, if, if the Prime Minister can't attempt another meaningful vote, and certainly on the 14th, if we then get another amendable motion in Parliament. Correct, correct. I, you know, nobody expects... Theresa, Theresa May to come back uh, on the 13th uh, and um, to propose a second vote on the Brexit deal. She, she, she won't have enough to be able to credibly do that and overcome um, the deficit in Parliament. I, th I, th I think that is just the timing wouldn't work for her. She's going to need more time um, to work things through with Labour if she's to be successful. Um, but there will be voting on Brexit in Parliament uh, on Thursday the 14th of February. Um, we don't yet know what the motions will look like. Uh, most likely um, we may see something that resembles the Cooper Amendment that didn't pass um, uh, 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 last week. Um, uh, but again, uh, this will reveal something uh, about the nature and the scale of potential rebellions in both of the main political parties. Yeah, I mean, and just as an as an observation here, as kind of, I mean, we're, we're both long-term watchers of British politics, but the, the 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 dynamic here, essentially, of the issue transcending party politics is really striking, isn't it? Uh, it does not come naturally to the British uh, political system, uh, and actually, when you look at the, the two uh, main party leaders at the moment, they, they are by instinct adversarial politicians. They, they don't like each other. They clearly, uh, whenever um, uh, they, they meet across um, the, the dispatch boxes in Parliament, um, uh, the, 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 the personal chemistry is very poor. Um, so th 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 this will be a real test of their ability to put aside their differences uh, to see whether um, they are able to reach some sort of compromise uh, to, to get uh, the Brexit deal over the line. Yes, and of course, both leading parties that themselves are stubbornly refusing to come to unified positions, which complicates everything. 
and, that, and that's, that's quite simply because they are deeply divided and they're struggling to cope with those internal divisions uh, in order to um, put forward coherent negotiating positions uh, which, which, which can then produce a majority in Parliament. Having said that, um, uh, for all lab the Labour Party's internal divisions, um, uh, at least uh, Jeremy Corbyn can say that he, he has now made clear uh, the terms in which he's willing to do a deal with the government. Yeah, and indeed potentially with the EU. Gregor, thanks very much. Um, you can read Gregor's full analysis and a lot more on the Global Council website. That's www.global-council.co.uk. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.co.uk and subscribe to our mailing list. You can also follow us on Twitter at global underscore council. Thank you.